0: You're listening to culture. 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 culture.
1: Welcome. I'm Christina Michelle, inviting you to join me for Culture Rich Conversations. Today, we conclude our celebration of Black History Month with a groundbreaking conversation featuring Doug Melville, the renowned author of Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy, and a quest to honor America's first Black Generals. Mr. Melville will take us on a remarkable journey of uncovering the truth behind his family's contribution to desegregating the U.S. military. From America's first Black General, to Tuskegee Airmen in World War II, we will cover it all from KTOO and Juno. This is Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich. Culture, culture, rich. culture, culture, culture. culture rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon, celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. I'd like to share that Culture Rich Conversations is also supported by the Alaska Humanities Forum and the National Endowment for the Humanities, a federal agency. Any views, findings, conclusions or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Today, my special guest is joining us all the way from New York via Zoom, and we are so very excited to have this conversation. Welcome, Mr. Melville. Before we dive into your phenomenal book, Invisible Generals, can you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: First of all, thank you so much. I am coming to you live from New York. It's dark over here. I'm sitting in front of a Basquiat but we're on the radio, so you no know one will be able to see it, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, my, name is, uh, my name is Doug Melville, and uh, I'm the author of the new book, Invisible Generals, my quest to uncover uh, my family's story. So uh, by trade, uh, for the last 12 years, I've been a chief diversity officer, and I've traveled to 40 countries to understand what is equity, what is fairness, what is equality around the world. And uh, while I was doing that, I made time to ensure that I was able to write my own family story uh, and help uncover some of the rich history that is really American history. It's been pinholed and narrowed to be women's history and Black history, but it's really American history. And it's important that we understand that our commitment to American history may be uncovering and documenting the stories of those behind us. You know, a wise man once said, every time an elder passes, a library gets burned down. And I think it's our responsibility to write the stories for those who live before us and understand their sacrifices to allow us to have the gains we have today.
1: Well, Mr. Melville, I am so excited to have this conversation with you and uh, just listening to your book and some of the interviews that you've done before. It's just such a fascinating story and journey. Very exciting. And I know that we're going to get a lot out of it. Can you start us off with telling us when did you first discover that you had a story to tell?
0: Well, I think inherently I just like telling stories just as a person, you know, uh, kind of uncovering different stories as a kid or growing up or kind of the, all the amazing hidden history even before the internet that you could just find. But this story in particular stood out to me uh, when I went to go see the screening of a movie called Red Tails, which was George Lucas's final movie before he um, sold his company to the Disney Corporation. And in that movie, Terrence Howard was playing the patriarch of my family, Ben Davis. And Ben Davis, you know, bought me my first car at 16. He bought me golf clubs. He bought me my first computer. He paid for my college. You know, like many times there's one person in the family that's the one that provides or helps support your family financially or through advice. And when I got invited to the movie, and the screen went dim, I saw Terrence Howard walk on the screen as the commander of the Red Tails, but his name was changed. And when I saw that his name was changed, that's when I realized I needed to uh, do something about this to ensure that other people whose names were changed, their stories got out. So I went to my dad, and I was outraged, and my dad said, Doug, what are you going to do about it? One of the things Ben always said was, You can't complain about something and fix something at the same time. And when I was uh, at at the screening, people kept saying to me, Doug, this is Hollywood. Of course the names are changed. (laughs) Horrible. all this together, you know, had me motivated to really take the time and the effort to uncover my story. Because I knew, I actually looked around at my family, cousins and brothers and sisters, like, can you believe this? And everybody you know, has a day job. They're like, Doug, nobody, (laughs) listen, they took the name out of the movie. Nobody's quitting their job to, you know, do all this. But for me personally, I left my career in marketing and joined an ad agency as a diversity officer. And I said, there was going to be two things that I commit to after seeing that movie and seeing the name removed. The first thing I was going to commit to was to switch my career to become a diversity officer, to make sure those that were invisible are now visible. And the second thing that I was going to do was start researching my family's story based on the stories my dad was telling me firsthand and go and try to uncover the legacy of these two men that I had begun to learn about and were learning so much more about.
1: So before you began this research uh, with your family's history in the U.S. military, did you have any preconceived notions about what you would find? And if so, what were they?
0: I think I just, you know, I'm not really a historian or a researcher, so I really wasn't sure what I was going to find. I did talk to a documentarian who told me that when you start a project like this, you never know where it's going to end. You know, you don't what you're going to uncover. You don't know the medium it's going to live in. So it's not like I started with the intention of writing a book. I just was really just starting, you know, basic curiosity and Googling and going on eBay and, you know, trying to find information on LinkedIn, you know, connecting with different people in the military. So it started pretty basic. So I didn't really know what I was looking for, but I just wanted to, try to uncover and find different aspects along the way
1: so the 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 big names in the book um ben davis senior and ben davis jr can you tell us about uh, who these gentlemen are and their journey
0: yeah so um ben davis senior and ben davis jr have the same name and they were america's first two black generals uh, the the father was the first black general in the United States Army. The son was the first black general in the United States Air Force. And they went on to help integrate the United States by helping draft the integration policy in 1948 with President Truman. They ended up uh, commanding the Tuskegee Airmen, Ben Davis Jr. Uh, after he retired, he would be the gentleman who was responsible for creating commercial airline security, the United States Air Marshal Program, and in 1974, created the 55 mile an hour speed limit. So these men actually are touching things that we see every single day. But the reality of the situation is, if I didn't know about them and they were in my own family, who's to say what we knew about them in general? So that was really, um, my passion was around that But in my own family, um, these two men raised my dad uh, as his son. So uh, my dad was an only child, and Ben Davis Jr.'s wife was unable to bear children. So when my dad was seven years old, he wanted to build the same relationship with a son that his dad had built with him. So he moved my dad to Tuskegee, Alabama, and raised him his whole life uh, as it was his son, which who also was, you know, remarkable, you know, that because my dad didn't really say anything. He's from the silent generation. Uh, so it was good for me to learn even my dad's journey through this and actually help him relive his childhood.
1: What was the most astonishing piece of information you uncovered during this process?
0: Um, I think the most astonishing piece of information that I uncovered, there was many different astonishing pieces of information, but I think um Ben's accomplishments uh, with airport security in the 55 mile an hour speed limit were you know mind blowing. I think one of the most surprising things I found out was uh Ben Jr. actually drew the aquatic line that separates China from Taiwan, mainland China from Taiwan in the Taiwan Strait. And, you know, actually I learned uh that the line in taiwan is actually called the davis line because he drew it and that was his last name but in america they just called the the line that separates mainland china from thailand (laughs) in taiwan i'm sorry but that was a really large learning for me as well um i learned about the press conference that jesse jackson held in 1988 where he where he had a press conference for the word African American, and he wanted to get Ben's support, and Ben wanted him after we reached the year nineteen eighty eight to actually have a press conference to call us Americans, mm. not African Americans, and how they disagreed on that. But you know things all around us that we don't know. Like I never thought of the word African American. I don't know where it came from. Right. I don't even know what, when, or anything. But just to know that, you know, there's so many of these little sidebars and tidbits that, you know, you find and come across along the way that you just uh, can't believe that you didn't know it before. Um, and actually, one other thing that I learned is, I mean, I could go on. But during World War II, uh, when the Tuskegee Airmen were flying in Ramatelli, Italy, or in their training process before they left the army was a hundred percent segregated and i think that when i watch all those world war ii movies i never really realized the united states military was a hundred percent segregated and that when the tuskegee airmen started flying airplanes all of their parts and all of their tools and all of the mechanics were also segregated. So if a screwdriver was used on a white pilot's airplane, it couldn't be used on a black pilot's airplane. If a seat or a plane or any piece was used, if a mechanic fixed a white person's airplane, they couldn't fix a black person's airplane. So it helped me put into perspective our challenges today and show how little they are comparatively. But also how inefficient this was and how hard it must have been knowing that nothing you could use in a time of war from your own partner, fellow Americans could be utilized by you if it was used or touched by a white person. And I think that part of it was just astonishing.
1: Oh, my gosh, that it's the most astonishing thing to me. Um, I, I I don't even know where to start. I have so many questions and I'm sure our listeners do, too. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by my guest and author of Amazon bestseller, Invisible Generals, Mr. Doug Melville. And we're having a conversation about his family's history with the U.S. military. So let's back up a little bit to. um the to the airport. Can we talk about that? Because that mm-hmm. is something that you never really think of. I know growing up for me in the like late 80s, early 90s, you just there already was airport security, but it wasn't mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. like it is mm-hmm. now. And then we've seen this progression over the past couple of decades to where it is. But you never really think about how how it got the way that it was or where it started or, you know, that, that process. So can you tell us about how uh, Ben Davis, was it senior or junior? And uh, that was, how, ben,
0: ben, oh. I'm sorry.
1: sorry.
0: No, I was going to say it was Ben junior.
1: Yeah. Okay. Ben junior. Okay. So um, can you explain his contribution to the way that security is done at the airport now? I really want us to all get that.
0: Yeah. So um, when Ben retired from the United States military in 1970, he had commanded uh, the Tuskegee Airmen. He had become a one, two and three star general. And he was unable to get a job in the private sector because most of aviation was still segregated de facto. So uh, the Pentagon said, hey, listen, if you would like to make airport security as safe as you made military security, Perhaps we could work together with one another and you could help advise us. And what Ben started seeing was that there was a lot of hijackings, a lot of skyjackings. And at the time, and this is even hard for me to believe, people would go on the plane with weapons and then they would walk up the aisles and take everybody's pocketbooks and jewels and then open the door and parachute out and someone would collect them in a car. This happened, <laughs> yo, this, <laughs> this happened hundreds of times.
1: This so, is crazy, but this was in a time where there was no social media. There was no like major news coverage on all no, of this stuff. they knew stuff. Where
0: the car was coming. <laughs> they knew where their car was. They knew where they had to pick you up. You know crazy.
1: what I mean?
0: So Ben said, there's three things we should do to combat this. Number one, We should start commercial airport security where we tell everybody that their bags and their bodies will be scanned for weapons and metal. And at the time, there were only two airports in the United States that had commercial security, and they were both in Washington, D.C. The second thing he said is we need to train 4,000 soldiers, I'm sorry, um, off duty policemen and uh, military. To be air marshals and created the United States Air Marshal Program. And the third thing is he said we need to create a door that locks once the plane takes off and nice. the engines start unable to be open. And all three of those things are still in and um and active today. And this was under President Nixon. <laughs> so people don't even realize not only who did it, but that it was actually a, a person of color and you know an American who was so smart in aviation on the military side and then switched that over to uh give that to the uh the commercial side.
1: Incredible. Okay, um one more question before we take a quick break. Can you tell us about Mr. 55?
0: Yeah, so Mr. 55 was so he was so successful in airport security that um President Carter Uh, brought him on and said, could you do the same to make uh, travel on the highways safer? And he came up with the optimal speed limit to save lives and the optimal speed limit to save gas which was 55 miles an hour and created the 55 mile an hour speed limit.
1: Again, just so incredible. I mean, every day we're going down Egan and we see 55, right? (laughs) Wherever you live, there's going to be a speed limit sign that says that. Mm -hmm. And now to know where that came from is just incredible. Wow. Well, I am so excited to continue this conversation with you, Mr. Melville. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
2: Oh, mm-hmm.
1: The Black Awareness Association would like to take a moment to recognize that culture-rich conversations is broadcast from Flinkit Ani. We acknowledge those families who made use of this land and waterways for thousands of years and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life for today and future generations. Thank you. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. And today I'm joined by my guest, Mr. Doug Melville. And he is the author of the incredible book called Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. So before we went to break, Mr. Melville was sharing about the history of Ben Davis Sr. and Ben Davis Jr. And this was father and son in their contributions to changing the U.S. military as we know it today. We already heard about Mr. 55, how the 55 mile an hour speed limit came to play, um, how the, the The way that security is done at the airport uh, was also a product of Ben Jr. And I just can't wait to learn even more about this incredible legacy. So, uh, Mr. Melville, can you tell us about the process of bringing this incredible book to life?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, the process uh, basically began with just simple everyday research, you know, looking at things, Googling things. Um, trying to really find you know what was what uh, really light light work. And uh, over the course of years I started to pick different stories up, go to presidential museums, go to the Smithsonian, go to you know other areas. but it really picked up um, in 2015 when um, I set a Google Alert actually after the movie in 2012 and in 2015 it went off. And it was a it was a um, uh, a Google alert from uh, West Point, and they were considering naming one of their biggest, largest buildings after Ben Davis Jr., who had graduated from West Point, but had attended there four years, being silenced because of his race. So they had never really acknowledged it. And when the Google alert went off, uh, it. It had me reach out to, it encouraged me to reach out to the West Point that our family hadn't spoken to. And I went up there and I shared the story. And when their historian got on board and when they started asking more questions and wanting to be more engaged, that was really a turning point where I realized that, you know, this story really is powerful because these were the people that were closest to it. And this was really Ben's peer support group. So that was when I realized it was much more than a family story, but it was actually uh, an overall story uh, that could really be part of American history.
1: Um, I want to know how long it took you to write this book. But before that, can you explain what a Google alert is?
0: Uh, Yeah, a Google alert is just me going on Google and then hitting the button that says set an alert. And I put Ben Davis, Benjamin Uh. O. Davis, Ben Davis Sr., And then anytime an article or a press came up with his name, that was how I was able to track it because I was trying to see if anybody else was interested in his story, Googling his story, looking at his story. And this was a way uh, that I was able to do that.
1: Smart. That's a great tip for anybody who does a lot of research. Oh, that's
0: a pro tip. Yeah. Listen, for everyone living their best life in Alaska right now, we know it's cold. (laughs) So set those Google (laughs) alerts. Okay. Set the Google alerts. Um, it's very, very important to set the Google Alert. And then uh, during COVID, many of the museums uh, actually scanned a lot of their items. So it allowed us, if we are doing research, to find a lot of the video images and periodicals that existed that were in museum basements that weren't yet scanned. So I think there's a lot of information out there, and that's why the Google Alert was an important piece.
1: Okay. So with the Google alert, how long did it take you to complete the book?
0: Um, it took me about uh, eight years of research. And then when I got my book deal at the end of 2020, you know, like six months to, you know, kind of get, you know, the outline and everything exactly how you want it. And then it took about, uh, you know, six months to a year to write. And then six months to edit and then, you know, come up with the marketing and everything. And then the book comes out. So overall, you got to give yourself, you know, really two years, one and a half years, two and a half years is kind of the book creation process. And what they tell you when you write a book, funny enough, is it's the last entertainment medium that really still has a product. Mm. Everything else, streaming, everything is digital. Everything is subscription. But for a book, they have to actually physically lay out the pages, physically put the words, physically insert the pictures. So it was a, it's, it's a little bit of a longer lead than you would imagine because we're so used to having everything as instant gratification. So um, that was kind of part of the process that I wasn't aware of. But I tell everybody, you know, you pick your book date three years in advance. So by the time your book comes out, you don't know if the world's good, bad, and different. You don't right. know if there's problems parties you don't really know what's going on but what you do know is that date was picked 3 years ago and uh you hope for the best with timing
1: so over the course of 8 to you know 10 years of putting this book together um was there anything that kept you up at night and if so why
0: um i think the one thing that kept me up at night uh was well, I really wanted to bring this story to the world. And I was a little nervous after I was in it six, seven, eight years, you know, would it get a book deal? You know, I wasn't sure where it was all going to go because Mm -hmm. when you research, you're just writing it down really for yourself or your friends or your family. Like it's not really going anywhere. Um, So that was definitely one thing that kept me up at night. The second thing was, you know, learning how systematic things happened and really getting a better understanding of how America was formed. You know, I, I, again, I didn't know race was the center of America. You know, I knew it was part of it, but the way it's presented mm-hmm. today, you don't realize that a hundred percent segregation, you know, like, mm-hmm. I just don't think we really even know, you know, that was really hard to comprehend. And that kept me up at night, you know, as a diversity officer asking, you know, is there hope for diversity? Do people want it? How do you integrate it? Because it was, it was making me better and smarter and sharper at my own career subconsciously because I was, I used to have a saying, no one can out diversity me because all these years of understanding it, was almost a de facto PhD or a master's six year degree where you could go in there and you could just say, you know, I don't know it from a scholarly level, but on a research level, this is disturbing. Right. You know? And, And we didn't know that, you know, like you don't really know that women were able to vote in a certain year, but that wasn't black women or, you know, the Tuskegee airmen, uh, We're in the 40s, 1940, and that blacks were unable to operate heavy machinery until after the end of the war when the Tuskegee Airmen were successful because policy wouldn't allow it because of all the racist tropes and things that were created to limit their opportunities. And when you add it all up, you realize that, you know, America's. real downfall or missed opportunity or biggest opportunity or greatest gift is that diversity and race is part of the conversation. But how we handle that, I feel, was something that kept me up because it's our responsibility. So going back to you can't fix something and complain about something at the same time, I was torn a little bit watching James Baldwin or going back and watching Malcolm X videos or going back and watching Martin Luther King videos, or, you know, all the, I was on YouTube for hours, just watching a lot of old videos, really trying to wrestle with what is the role of the modern diversity officer? What is a company's responsibility? What is government's responsibility? And another thing that was stood out to me was how much their promotions were done around elections, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know? So FDR, FDR promoted Ben Davis Jr. to be America's first black pilot for the army to win the black vote. And when you go back and read the writings, you know, most of blacks over 90% voted for Republican party. Uh Uh-huh. Abraham Lincoln created it all the way up to the 1940 election. So, for essentially 40, 50 years, most black people in the United States of America were voting Republican. And then in 1940, in order to win the black vote, FDR created the civilian pilot program and allowed blacks to participate. And because that happened, it was really to get the black vote. Ben Davis Sr., the father, became a general. October 25th, 1940, right before the election. Ben Davis Jr. got promoted before the election three different times to the general one, two, and three star. So what I started to see was the politicizing of race Mm. as part of an election strategy and really tried to put myself in the position of these two men who had worked their whole career and been overlooked. But then when the opportunity came, It was subjective, so they were grateful for it and happy of it, and they never complained about it. But reading it in the canon of that time period, you look at it and say, you understand it with a different perspective. And that also kept me up at night.
1: Mr. Melville, what has the feedback been um, on your book, Invisible Generals? Uh, And I'm most interested, I guess, And what the feedback has been from the, from the black community, if, if you have Mm -hmm. that specific information?
0: Well, the first feedback was I don't do enough um, appearances in Alaska. So I think now that we got that figured out, no, I'm just saying that was the first feedback I got. They go, Doug, listen, we understand it's the 49th state, but you cannot come here 49th. And I say, you know what, guys, I love you. I'm going to listen to that feedback. I'm going to double down culture rich conversations. <laughs> don't even come for me. That's the first thing. I said if you tell me that I'm not worthy for culture rich conversations on KTOO in Alaska, I am not coming. That was the first feedback. Now, the second feedback was uh thank you so much for enlightening me on this story because I was in the military and didn't know. I'm a historian and didn't know. I'm a, no, you know, whatever the case may be. And I think a lot of uh, Black Americans in particular um, look at it as almost a, a form of somewhat vindication because they knew it all along, but yeah. they never had the data or the backup to really prove it.
1: Well, I mean, we're all about culture rich conversations. And, you know, with the Black Awareness Association, our tagline is rich in culture, strength and pride. And this just embodies everything that we're about talking about culture, strength and pride. And I mean, I have a um, my father is military, my grand well, retired military. My grandfather is retired military. I have several military uncles um, and other family members. And I cannot wait for them to read this book. If they haven't already, they may have. But I know that they're going to be shocked and they're going to be so very proud as well by what they learn um, from your findings. Um, what? How did you choose yeah, the title? I'm oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Oh, no, no. I was going to say thank you. Yeah. You know, I chose the title. Um, it was actually the first title I have for the book. And I hope they I was hoping they didn't change it. Uh, which they did not, but I was a little nervous. That was the one part I was most precious about um, in the process. But um, Invisible Generals was really a summation of their careers in life, but also a term that my dad had used because he was a young boy, seven years old, and Ben would always tell him, you have to live like you're invisible. Don't make noise. Mm, Wow. Don't disobey. Don't drive at night once he got his license. you know, All the things we kind of hear about. You know, we don't want any problems. We don't want to make life harder. We don't want anything to get worse. So it was partly that part. Uh, when Ben Davis Jr. arrived at West Point in 1932, uh, he was told on his second day uh, that he would be treated as if he's invisible uh, until he drops out mm. uh, because the form of silencing that was used back in the day. So that was another... Um, reason that I chose that name and Ben Davis senior, uh, many people would call the invisible general because he became America's first black general in 1940 after spending 50 years in the United States army, but was never able to command a white person. And because most blacks had pick and shovel jobs, which was a term they used, um, for black Americans because the quality of the jobs they were getting when they signed up for the army were so limited. It was construction, building railroads, you know, um, cooks, chefs, waiters, you know, that kind of thing that he was only a general of those people and he should have had many more assignments, but he didn't. So a lot of people called him the invisible general because He was a general in the United States Army, but wasn't showing up in any of the photos, any of the documents. And so it was kind of like a triple entendre uh, that came together for the title Invisible Generals.
1: It's a great title. It's it's absolutely perfect. What do you wish you had known before writing Invisible Generals that you now know?
0: Um. I wish I would have known culture rich conversations <laughs> uh, no, <but> I, <laughs> I love, love I really enjoy this. I'm just having a little fun with it, but um, I really wish I would have known uh the story more while Ben jr. was alive, so mm. I could have had a chance to talk to him about it. I mean, I knew you know he was a loving man, he was an older man he was you know, like I was saying, you know, so positive and nice, but I didn't really know him on the level of anything professional, even though he passed when I was in my twenties, I still, we never really talked about that kind of thing. So um, it was really just, I wish I would have just had more time with him or been able to ask him about, you know, what was it like, you know, because now I'm almost an expert in a man who I knew more about when he passed away than he was when he was alive. Um, So that was what I wish I would have known more about. I wish I would have been in the know a bit more, but I'm not sure I would have appreciated it. Mm. I mean, honestly, you know, I got out of college. I was helping entertainers create their passion projects. I was working. uh, I was the president of one of Magic Johnson's companies. So I was really working more with entertainers and parties and fashion and things of that nature. So I don't know if I really would have appreciated it, to be quite honest with you, but that's why if I could look back and know now, you know, of course, but that's the area I wish that I would have known more about or would have asked to be more understanding about.
1: So can you tell us what the most rewarding part of this experience has been for you? And I you can say more than one. I'm sure there's lots of them, but uh, if you can tell us a couple of the most rewarding things about this,
0: uh, I th- I think the most rewarding thing was being able to put seventy thousand words in order with mm. great paragraphs. Yeah, nice. I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> if you never wrote a book before, I'm just saying this book is that it's not I a phrase. Feel that. It's an I an do. <laughs> uh, so that was the first part. And I think the sec uh, the other thing that I found most rewarding was reconnecting with my dad. Um, you know, I I'm a lecturer at Stanford University at a class called Reputation Management in their Graduate Business School, and you know, I was talking to uh, Allison Kluger. She's the host professor, and we were talking. We've become close uh, over the years because I've worked with her for the last several. And I was sharing with her about the book. And she says to me, Doug, did you know 80% of the interactions a mother and a father have with their child is before they're 18 years old? Okay. Because once, once everybody moves out, limited.
1: Nah, That makes sense.
0: And I, I was able to get another round of interactions with my dad, which was like the most grateful part. He's 90 years old now, you know, his health is hit or miss, but we went through this process together. And I think that was a huge uh, relief or learning experience for me.
1: God, That's so beautiful. Well, and that also brings me to my next question about legacy and how you feel that the work that you have done, uh, what what impact has it had on your family legacy?
0: Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think. We didn't know our family legacy. We didn't know someone in the family has to pull it together. Like it's not necessarily the project manager, but it's someone in the family has to pull all this together and get everything aligned and get everything working. And I think for me, uh building the family legacy, aligning it, organizing it was a big first part to kind of level setting where we were. And I think for my dad, it was even honoring him as one of the first black judges. You know, I talk in the book that, you know, when my dad went to Howard Law School, um the schools were segregated. You know, he goes, I went to a black college, Doug, because all we could go to was black colleges. We actually like couldn't go to other colleges. And um Thurgood Marshall at the time was practicing on the bench. Uh, and I'm sorry, practicing as a lawyer presenting to the United States Supreme Court. But he wasn't a Supreme Court justice, but because the Supreme Court building was segregated, he couldn't go in and practice on weekends. So he would go to Howard University and he would have the children, I mean, not the children, the students help assist him uh, in role playing. And this is a story my dad had never told me. And I thought, how amazing that you got to work under Thurgood Marshall. And he's like, well, Doug, I don't know if I worked under him. I was just a college student. And I'm sitting here going, in the days of Instagram, you roll up on Fetty Wap and hug Mm -hmm. him. Next (laughs) thing you know, they're your best friend. (laughs) And meanwhile, my dad's actually like working with this guy for a year. And he's like, Doug, 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 we're not really working together. And I say, you know, the humility of this generation is on a (laughs) hundred. And, um, you know, those are the kind of stories or my dad had a little picture in his chambers where he worked. And I used to say, dad, what is that? And he goes, Oh, this is a picture I got when I used to go over George Washington carvers. And I was like, what? And my dad's like, well, yeah, Doug, he was in Tuskegee and he would grow all the fruits and vegetables and I would be the runner and bring him over to the guys who didn't have the food and everything. And I go, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, Ben would drop me o- over there. And I go, George Washington Carver was your babysitter. <laughs> and my dad's like, no, no, no. Like he wasn't my babysitter. It's George Washington Carver. And I said, dad, if an adult drops a child at another guy's house, you are, he is your babysitter. You're the babysitter, right? Yeah. 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 So, anyway, that, that's what I was just saying. Those are the stories that you can't connect with unless you go through this process with your family, almost therapeutically.
1: Okay. Well, this has been such an incredible conversation. I know that there's so much more that you could tell us, um, but I also want to encourage our listeners to go out and to get the book themselves. I listened to it on a audio listening platform and uh, you could also check it out um possibly at our local library i haven't uh, gotten a chance to see if it's there or not yet but the name um, is invisible generals and the author is doug melville mr melville uh, can you tell us what's coming up next for you and if there's anything else that you would like to share with us before you go
0: yeah, first, I would say I would love to come back and just be your third co host. <laughs> I don't even want to pay. Or any, I just love this energy and I love the love. And no one can see the smiles, but it's all so warm and feels so good that if you ever need anything from me, or as my brother said, even if you don't need anything from me, just call me.
1: We I so, definitely uh, will be taking you up on that offer. <laughs> that's number one. That's number one.
0: Um, But the thing is, I want to just say to everybody out there, the second half of the book is called uh, How to Be a Visible General, and it Mm. walks through all the steps I took. So if we want to make America the country that it, it, it strives to be, and all of us have participation in that, I would like to encourage everyone to go out, pick up a copy of the book, but most importantly, start the process of uncovering your own family history and your own legacy Because the best stories in the world are on the couch and they're not talking and this is our opportunity and perhaps it's ours, um, you know, to to play uh, for the world and put in that research and really grow in that area. So I really want people to tell their own story. Every single story is an insight to the tapestry that is America and the world. And there's so much history we do not know that's untold. And if this story could go untold and my own family, it's hard to imagine what else is out there. So that's what I would like everybody to do. And for our veterans, mm-hmm. donate time, donate money. Uh, if you're a manager, give employees you know, days off, volunteer days, veteran days, so we could support better through efforts and outreach of our veterans and what they did for this country and what they did for this world.
1: Wow. Well, the voice that you just heard is Mr. Doug Melville. He is the author of Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. Go get that book anywhere that books are sold. Also on audio platforms. Uh, Check Heartside Books here locally and with our local library. Mr. Melville, again, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. You will be back. At least you'll be invited back. And we hope that you'll accept Absolutely. our Absolutely. And, and if
0: I'm in Alaska or you're in New York, we're doing this.
1: Okay. We'll make it happen.
0: All right. Have a great evening, afternoon, and a wonderful bonus day. This is a <laughs> bonus day bonus this year. Day. <laughs> we need everybody to be celebrating. Do something wonderful today because this is a free day.
1: It's a free day. And it's the last day of Black History Month. So yes. do something yes. extra special. All right, Mr. Melville, have a good evening. Thank you
0: so much. Have a great afternoon.
1: All right. And to our listeners, we will be right back in just a moment with Today in Black History. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm your host, Christina Michelle. Today in Black History, we celebrate Hollywood icon Hattie McDaniel. On February 29, 1940, Hattie McDaniel cemented her place in American history as the first African-American to ever win an Oscar as she accepted her heart her award, she said through her tears, I sincerely hope that I shall always be a credit to my race and the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you how I feel. Although she endured many hardships from being born to enslaved parents to receiving backlash for her acting roles, Hattie McDaniel paved the way for every actor of color who followed her. Today, we recognize her perseverance and determination that changed the trajectory of Black culture forever. Thank you for listening today. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Our email address is junobaa at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching BAA Juno. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 33734, Juno, Alaska 99803. You can also subscribe to our podcast, Anywhere You Podcast. Just look for Culture Rich Conversations wherever you enjoy listening. Today's show was produced by Natasha Boozer. Until next week, may your life be blessed and flow with ease. I'm Christina Michelle, and this has been Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon, celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. You're listening to culture rich. Culture Culture. Culture. rich.